the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're talking about the business of sports and the growing use of agents by top athletes in many sports in Ireland. But first, as always, we're going to start with our wrap and I'm joined in studio by co-host Michael O'Keefe. And Mickey, you're very welcome. Thank you, Kieran. And we're going to start with our wrap of recent uh, business to sports news items and we're going to start with TV rights deals uh, in England. And the English uh, Football League, which is the the Championship, League One, League Two, uh, etc., uh, they've just concluded a deal with Sky Sports. Yeah, and look on, on the surface of it, it's a it's a, it looks like a good deal. It, it's a five hundred ninety five million sterling deal. Uh, it's a five year deal. Um, although there seems to be a, a lot of um, disquiet. Discord. Yeah, a lot of discord, a lot of disquiet. You know, it is a 35% increase on the last contract. However, I, I think the kernel of this is that there's a lot of, you know, big clubs like Derby County, Aston Villa, Leeds United, a couple of those that would probably have premiership ambitions. And they may feel that with the size of the, the 4.5 billion deal that was done with the Premier League, that the gap between the rich and the, the, the haves and the have-nots is only going to increase, making it more difficult for them to compete and, and so forth if they do go up. The other one is I think there's uh, disquiet over the term of the deal which is a, a five-year deal. Um, some people might say that's good business by by the EFL. Others might say that, well, you know, with the fast-changing landscape in, in broadcast, digital platforms, etc., would a shorter-term deal have been better served in terms of maybe mm. capitalising on a more diverse portfolio the, the 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 next time around? Yeah. Now, some Irish interests and some recent Scottish football rights that have changed hands. Um, Mickey O'Rourke, who was a co-founder of Satanta Sports that we all knew and loved uh, for many years. It's now uh, Air Sport, owned by Air. But Mickey's got another company called Premier Sports and they've been winning up some uh, rights of late, uh, including some cup rights in Scotland. Yeah, and they, um, Mickey has, has ventured back into the world of sports rights after after the Satanta and Air Sport um, experience and obviously well-known in this market. Um, has also got Premier League fixtures that he has bought um, and has Scottish... Premier League and also the Betfred Cup, I think exclusively, which the in Scotland. Um, there's an interesting development here. I I think that there seems to be the big players like like Sky Sports, who obviously do a fantastic job and have been around for such a long time. But there's what looks like people who are buying rights and reselling. And I don't know is Mickey finding a, a bit of a niche between the right sellers and and the ultimate broadcaster as well, um, and it seems to be quite a clever clever move on on, on his behalf because it's such a as we said it's such a it's one, an issue we we cover regularly here. It's such a complex and diverse marketplace and one that I don't think anybody can credibly say where it's all going to end up in, in in a few years' time. But look, fair play to him; he's a very successful entrepreneur and he's back back in the game as well. Yeah. Okay. Now. The Irish rugby team, international rugby team, is very much on a roll at the minute. We've got the Rugby World Cup coming up and rugby fans in Ireland, huge anticipation uh, towards that. Air Sport had hoovered up the rights for the Rugby World Cup in Japan and Air Sport yep. isn't available free to air. But there is good news for Irish rugby fans because they have sub-licensed a lot of games, well, Ireland games in particular, to RTE. Yeah, and look, at the only, Air Sport have, have um, been broadcasting um, uh, rugby matches. They did the Ireland... Uh, New Zealand match in, in Chicago was the biggest one that they've probably done to date and obviously you know made a lot of headlines with the with winning the, the 2019 World Cup rights which is a huge boost for them you would you would you would say um they have sublicensed the games back to RTE which means that they will be as you as you say free to air now some air sports uh platforms are free to their customers so on so it's it's not that straightforward but um you know I I I think what you'll have then is the the big Irish games on both channels at the same time 
Um, and you will also have Airsport will have a multiple other matches as well, which they'll be showing some of the other big games that are on that maybe don't yeah. involve Ireland too. But like you know, I, I think rugby's popularity over the last ten to fifteen years, and we've Nile Woods coming on as well. I think you know it's it's never been higher. The, the, the viewer numbers are absolutely astronomical, and I think um, uh, it must be said this is not an act of altruism by Airsport. No, it's not required by under legislation that uh, all of Ireland's games at the Rugby World Cup are shown free to air, and I think the final as well. Yeah, and and you know it's when it, when the, when in this market that would mean um, RT or or Virgin, um, and RT has been the the, the successful uh, buyer of those. Uh, all right, let's move to international football. Unfortunately, uh, not such good times for the Republic or indeed Northern Ireland uh, at the minute. Both of them getting relegated in the Nations Cup, and Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane moving on uh, from their role uh, in charge of the Republic of Ireland soccer team. But there was some uh, air of positivity. Uh, recently with the FEI and the IFA announcing a joint bid to host the UEFA under 21. Yeah, look, I, I think when it comes to the FAI, I, I think so much is p- dependent on on what happens with the international team. So, you know, all the stuff that goes on in the background, good, bad and different, tends to get clouded by how the international team is doing. There is some good stuff going on on the women's team and some of the underage teams. And this is quite a good news story in terms of uh, a North-South bid, which is always positive in terms of North-South relations and Brexit and everything else that's going on. The, it was launched in Belfast, which is quite interesting. Um, and they've put forward a number of grounds to host the under-21 European Championships in 2023. The likes of, you know, the redeveloped Daily Mount, Tala, uh, Turner's Cross, Windsor Park. The RFU have are, have given um, an Ulster and, and Munster Thoma Park in Kingspan too. So I think this should be seen as a, as a positive development. Um, you know, and, and and I think, look, from from an Irish soccer perspective, I think any good news must be welcome at this particular moment in time. Mm. Uh, final in Belfast, surprised by that? No, I don't think so. I, 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 I think I think the, the nature of the bid, I think, look, if we were bidding for a, a senior tournament, I think there'd be no doubt that the game would be in Dublin. I think this is probably part of the bid the bid process too. Um, and maybe it was the, the way to get the IFA involved was to promise the, the game for Windsor Park. Um, bear in mind, when we held the um, Women's Rugby World Cup, uh, the final was held in Belfast if my memory serves me right as well Yeah, um, UEFA coming to town this week uh, the Euro 2020 draw is on it's the first opportunity for Mick McCarthy I suppose to get involved with the international setup since he became manager for the next two years Stephen Kenny getting the job for the two well he'll be appointed once Mick McCarthy steps aside what do you make of that arrangement? Um, okay. First things first. I think it's great to have such a big international sporting um, event happening in this in this country. Um, you know, obviously, there's been a dark cloud over Irish football, and this should be a positive, and hopefully, it's the start of something new. Um, on the Stephen Kenny thing, I, I would have been a big um, advocate of his. I think um, it would have been a brave decision to appoint him. He's a young manager. He's got a great track record. I think it makes eminent sense to have a succession plan. I think it makes eminent sense to get him into the system. The question mark that people have asked and one you would have to ask yourself is <clears throat> the guarantee of a date and the guarantee of, of a succession as opposed to maybe saying there is a succession plan and it'll happen when it's right. How do we know if it's going to be right in two years' time or three years' time or five years' time? He could be ready next year. He could be ready in five years. And I think that's the one that I think people have a beef with rather than getting a really good, talented, youngish manager into the system to learn his trade. And, you know, people you speak to you know the question mark around would international players respect a fellow who's plied his trade with the League of Ireland uh, you know okay, he had some some overseas uh, managerial experience um, you know I, I, I think him going into the under 21 setup gives him an opportunity to just maybe see international football from a national perspective where 
as you say, you get the players for three or four days, you got to prepare them. It's not like you get them for two months pre-season and you have them every week and you can tweak things and move fellas around and stuff. So um, I'm, in, I'm broadly in favour of it. I, I, I think you'd have to question um, putting exact parameters and timelines around when a fella takes over or, or not. I think the RFU have done mm. probably a pretty spectacular job in terms of what yeah, they've and done. I wish him luck with the under-21s. We have a poor record at under-21 level. I hope he doesn't end up losing Very poor record. I mean, funny enough, it's, it's got a bit better in the last year or two, I think. But it has been shocking over the last, mm. last, last 20 all right, we're going to stay with soccer and the Premier League. They have a new CEO, Richard Scudamore, standing down after many years in charge. And he was the man who negotiated all of those mega sports rights deals with Sky, BT and others. Yeah, it's a good job to get this because they don't tend to flip them that often. So he's this is only the third uh, chief executive of the Premier League. Um, it's a lady called Susanna Dinage, or I think is how you pronounce it. She's the first female um, CEO and only the third CEO of the Premier League since its formation in 1992. Um, the interesting thing for me here is that her, her background is uh, she came as global president of Animal Planet uh, and she comes from a media rights background. And again, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, having a media or someone with a media rights expertise in a very senior role in what is commercial sport I think is now becoming uh, extremely relevant you only look at some of the other major appointments recently um, Ben Morrell who's gone into Six Nations and a couple of other people who are you know have deep expertise in in, in broadcast rights and, and digital rights and so forth so I think watch this space I think the Premier League are probably saying the model of, of the what has worked for the last 20 years is it going to stay there forever? They need someone at the cutting edge of this in order to keep the revenue coming. So I, I, it looks like a good appointment all around and, and interesting again that it is a, a female CEO in a, in a very high profile position. In yeah, and interesting too that Richard Scudamore uh, seems in line for a bit of a windfall uh, stepping down from the Premier League. Um, Chelsea chairman Bruce Buck had asked all of the clubs to contribute £250,000 towards uh, kind of a golden handshake if you like. Fair play to him. <laughs> if he can, it's nice money if you can get it. Indeed. Um, all right, now Nike moving into <clears throat> esports. What's all that about? Yeah. So look, esports is, is something we've touched on here, and it's you know it's a big kind of global phenomenon. It's not going away. It would have been seen as you know the uh, a place for armchair geeks and so on, but now it's gone quite mainstream. Um, again, is it a sport? Is it you know what you're seeing is now is big sporting franchises setting up esports teams, there's eSport leagues appearing in, in this market, there's uh, a lady who has set up um, eStars which is <clears throat> taking um, e-gaming around, you know, Premier League grounds and into into stadium like the Aviva and Crow Park and other places here. Um, it's a huge phenomenon. A Nike going into it is very interesting. I think they don't make too many mistakes from a sports marketing perspective. They obviously see the reach that these young e-gamers have um, they're after signing uh, 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 e-sports star called Jing Zhihao I think is how he pronounced his name um, and again they've signed a 144 million dollar deal with the Chinese League of Legends so um, uh, my understanding of this is that there, there's kind of a, a, a dual thing at play here one is the these guys who play games and they have these huge audiences where there's millions of kids tune in and on, not just kids, but millions of people tune in to watch them play. But then there's also the, the more grassroots games where hundreds of thousands of people are actually playing the same game at the same time. Um, so there's kind of two different kind of ways this this thing can grow, if that, if that makes any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but, um, that's neither here nor they. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But there, are, right. but there, there are others. There are others getting into it. Like, and, and I think what you're seeing is that the big traditional powerhouses like the Olympics and FIFA and that um, some of the big brands that would have been traditionally associated with those things were the mass eyeballs, like the Mastercards, Mercedes, Monster Energy, KFC. Those kind of people. A lot of them are putting a lot of their sponsorship budget into esports. So, watch this.
Space. All right. Okay. <laughs> Mick, we'll leave the wrap up there. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be talking to Niall Woods and Sinead Galvin about their roles as agents to some of Ireland's top athletes. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, this week we're talking about the business of sport and I'm joined in studio by co-host Michael O'Keefe. In professional sport, agents have become more and more prominent in an Irish context in recent years, particularly since the advent of professional rugby in Ireland, where a new industry has grown up in the past 15 years. But what's it like at the coalface? Niall Woods is a former Irish international rugby player and CEO of Rugby Players Ireland, who founded Navy Blue in 2011 and now represents some of Ireland's leading sports stars, including the likes of Gary Ringrose and Jordan Murphy. And Sinead Galvin is the founder of Galvin Sports Management. She has worked with sporting organisations such as Athletics Ireland and her high-profile client list includes European track medalist Thomas Barr and Paralympic swimmer Ellen Keane. Now, Niall and Sinead, you're very welcome to the studio. Niall, maybe start with you. You're a former Ireland uh, rugby player and you were involved in IRUPA, which was the Players Association set up. You retired kind of on the cusp of amateur into professional. Uh, but now you're very much uh, a player's age and not just rugby, other sports as well. But you've been known for uh, the rugby, I guess. And you've got this uh, company called Navy Blue and Gary Ringrose and Jordy Murphy, I know, will be a couple of your high profile clients. Tell us what it is you do. What it is we do, I uh, represent uh, players, athletes, sports media, individuals. Uh, so first and foremost, if you go to rugby players, is n- negotiate their contract of employment. And who's that with? Is that with the RFU, uh, Leinster? players with Munster, of... it's with Munster. If Leinster, it's with Leinster. Or in, into the UK with the clubs, sometimes it's, it's with the IRFU. Um, then you go to sports media, obviously RTE, News Talk, Virgin Media. So it's sort of a, a broad enough spectrum. So... You're trying to maximise their contract value, uh, whether it's the contract employment, the rugby salary, uh, if it's a sponsorship contract, um, as well as appearances. There's a lot more of that the last probably 12, 18 months. Uh, There's more brands looking to spend, uh, which obviously is good for business. How do you become qualified as an agent? What qualifies you to represent these guys, let's say? I don't think there's any specific qualification or you can study to be an agent. There is varying courses in sports management, but... I would have played, as you said, for Ireland. Uh, I retired, so my last international was in front of 80,000 people in Wembley and then I had a career-ending knee injury. So I got the highs and lows of, pro- of sport. Uh, I then worked for the Players Association in England, ran the one here, so across 10 years, and then felt is I'd represented players collectively. I wanted to do it individually. So I suppose I can relate to players, although I'm starting to get older and older. Um... When it comes to rugby players, some of the, I was captain in 1994. Some of my clients were born in my most recent one, I think, is 1998. So uh, it's, uh, it's a challenge, but uh, very enjoyable. It's sort of invigorating at times. So uh, there's no real specific, I think Sinead would agree, you're qualified to do this or not. I think it's something you get into. You probably have a, it's in you, and then you learn how to do it as you go. Yeah, Shane, tell us about your role. How does it differ from Niall's? Um, so Niall would focus on pitch. I very much focus off pitch in terms of trying to secure sponsorship and commercial deals for the athletes that I work with. 
So I suppose for me, I'm very much about how can I help them build and maintain their personal brand and depending on their level of marketability at that point in time to make sure that they get um, a good good return from the from the partnerships. So that's very much where my focus is at. Yeah, so what kind of money can be made in the Irish market? It's a small market at the end of it. It is. Well, I mean, the sponsorship market in f- in total in, in sports is about 140 million. And out of that, um, a huge proportion of that would go to the RFU and the GAA. So if you think about their title sponsorships and of that, then money would go to brand ambassadors in that particular space. So it's hard to know of that percentage how much goes to the other sports, a lot of whom I represent because when I started up the agency, I saw a gap in the market and an opportunity to bring diversity to the marketplace. So I represent Olympians, Paralympic Paralympic athletes and women in sport. Um, And that's a different space, but it's definitely a growing space and one that brands really are beginning to identify as needing to have as part of their portfolio. And they see the business benefits of it as well. Let's just say in a good year, what might uh, an athlete expect to make? It really depends on where they are in their cycle. Um, If you are talking about a high profile Olympian, they could be bringing in, you know, anything between 50 to 100 grand all in combined yeah. Yeah. So, Niall, just just first of all, I, I suppose when you look at the Asian landscape um, in terms of Irish people involved in, in in commercial sport. Obviously, some of the global players involved in golf and soccer and, and the huge revenue associated with that. But how has the professionalisation of, of of rugby really impacted sport in this market and, and created a whole generation and a whole new clientele? I suppose for yourself since nineteen ninety five ninety six when when the game turned pro. Yeah, when it went pro, obviously there was no rugby agents per se because it wasn't needed because it was all amateur. So it's grown, but probably slowly in the rugby space. Uh, There's probably three main players, four possibly in rugby, Irish based. Mm. Um, Then some of the global bigger ones, essentially, uh, who are global, but in the UK, the nearest to us, uh, Esportif, have bought people out over here. but I would probably be the biggest homegrown Irish rugby agency, even though I do other sports around that as well. So it's grown in the, in the fact that salaries have grown. Obviously, club's job is to keep the money down within reason or what they can afford. In the UK, if you go there, there's a salary cap. Yeah. So it's, it's totally different to negotiating a contract here um, because they can't have, add in incentives, uh, X amount more for appearances, whereas here there's a lot of that and there's win bonuses for players of all ages across academy contracts, development, full-time and international. So, and then in England, obviously, the clubs own the players, whereas here the union own the players. And how is it involved in terms of, like, I suppose, like a lot of things, there was the crossover from amateur to professional and then you would have had a first wave of what were agents, I suppose, who maybe were accidental yeah, in f- some respects. And then has it, do you think it's a far more sophisticated marketplace now than, say, 15, 20 years ago? Oh, absolutely. Because even if you go to recruitment uh, of players and clubs are looking at players, they would have been looking 10, 15 years ago for a scrum half, mm. whereas now they want a specific type of scrum half. They'll want a certain age profile, his injury profile, what he can earn off the pitch. Can the club earn anything from him off the pitch? So the RFU would, would look at that when they're retaining players as well. So with Brian O'Driscoll predominantly and the likes of Sexton, say when they were bringing him back from France, they know it's worth X amount to their sponsors by having Johnny in the country because they can't use him when he's outside the country. And, and players are better served, do you think, now than maybe 
10 years yeah, ago yeah, in, yeah. in terms of the, the, the quality of the, the, the person I mean, That's why I got into the business. I felt there was a gap in the market. Uh, so I started January 2011. So you're talking whatever, 14 years, 15 years into professionalism that the agency decided needed to be moved on a little bit uh, because it was just a literally the complaints I was getting was I see my agent once, twice a year yeah. when a contract's up and that's it. Uh, whereas nowadays it's literally you're on, in text contact with the players every week. Some more so than others because if they have sponsorship and outside appearances, but a lot of time you have to keep on it, otherwise you lose them. And Sinead, just in, in, in terms of your own, and you, you touched on something there in terms of um, working with athletes and particularly in what would be deemed minority sports in, in this market. But um, how much is it in uh, your role in terms of helping them to build their profile and understand their commercial uh, value as much as it is is kind of doing the doing the deals like is it a kind of a cyclical thing as you see it yeah yeah no absolutely I would do yearly reviews with everyone that I represent but as soon as I would sign somebody on or feel that they were marketable enough I would do a full kind of brand workshop with them and identify their own personal brand I get a sense of where their commercial opportunity is and I would also flag it to them and say listen I actually think you're you have huge potential but right now our priority is on building your profile because a lot of the sports that I represent it can be quite challenging because as I said earlier a lot of the sponsorship money goes elsewhere and that gives the opportunity because they're the brands that hold the media days that ends up getting the coverage so you have to help them to build their coverage by linking in with the media so you just make it clear to the athlete where you feel they are in their cycle um, and that makes it a lot easier. So some people it might be let's build a profile. For other people it might be there's an opportunity to do some PR days, which tend to be less in, of an investment from a brand point of view. And for other people like Thomas Barr, um, you know, a, a Olympic finalist, European bronze medalist, Ellen Keane, multiple Paralympic athletes. They're the type of people who are engaged in long-term partnerships with their brands. Um, but I also always try and keep a view to the long-term with athletes as well. You know, we try and sow some seeds for when that transition period starts as well. Um, because I do appreciate from my experience how challenging it can be for athletes to make that transition as well, you know. Shane, just explain to us how you as an agent, how you make your money. You're obviously representing other people in contract negotiations with their employers or with sponsors or, or brands, etc. But how do you actually make your money? So it's commission-based for me with the athletes that I represent. But I also, in terms of my overall business, have another sports marketing consultancy business. So I have two streams um, of income. But in terms of the athlete side of stuff, it's commission-based. Right. Uh, now we reported in the Irish Times this morning that George Mendes is football <laughs> super agent and made 17 million dividend out half, of his only Irish... Half an, only half an I was earnings last year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> out of his Irish company um, last year and he represents Ronaldo and uh, Jose Mourinho and a whole host of other uh, big name players. Uh, I, 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 what are the dividends like out of uh, rugby agents pot in Ireland? Maybe 17 euro maybe. Uh, no, obviously it's it's a dramat- dramatically different sort of landscape. So- soccer compared to pretty much most sports if you, within Europe anyway. So rugby obviously it's a lot smaller. Yeah. So um, Also there's transfer fees in football which in, in rugby there really so isn't yet fees there's, rugby, been, there's probably been five or ten <laughs> transfer fees in 20 odd years of professionalism and they've been minuscule so again 
like Sinead, it's commission-based. Yeah. Uh, X amount on the rugby contract and then on the commercial contracts, it's a higher amount. Now, so, in football, I don't want to tire everyone with the same brush, but in football, a lot of the agents, they're considered to be spivs and a bit slippery and uh, so forth. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that. So, yeah, generally like it... It's abuses of this notion that... Yeah, I mean, it sort of rubs off then to anyone when if anyone says what you do and you say I'm a sports agency or I'm a sports agent, it's generally either get... Oh, Jerry Maguire or the soccer agents. So, uh, and it's easy for clubs, governing bodies to uh, dish an agent. But I think in soccer terms, a lot of the time it's probably justified. Um, but a lot of the time with us, we work, it's much more transparent. There's a lot more integrity, I would say, in the business, in rugby. And certainly when you come to sponsorship contracts, dealing with the media, all of that, it's a lot more straightforward and clear cut. So I've researched getting into soccer. It's just not for me. It's not my area of expertise. Yes, I could earn substantial money. I suppose if you got lucky with a, a client, you, you probably only need one to make more than I'd earn quite yeah, substantially. Sure so right. uh, so maybe I'm, I'm in the wrong business, but um, it's just not for me. So I haven't gone down that road. There's sure. other areas which have sort of broadened across into women in sports uh, and the sports media side and doing events as well. And Sinead, the other image that people might have of sports agents, football agents in particular, is that it's very much male-dominated. Um, so how do you as a woman, yeah. again, get around that perception? I am good at what I do, so that's always a good starting point. Um, I just, you know, for me, my sport was athletics. Um, it was very much 50-50, male-female. I started on a start line training against boys. I never saw any issue with just, you know, if you're good at it, you're good at it, and that's all that matters. And I found generally when I made the decision to move into agency, like people of like Niall and Dave McHugh and people like that who are in the agency land, they're just like it's a community at the end of the day. In I'm terms sure it of sports, is, but, I was, but more, I was thinking just more in terms of from the employer's uh, point of view or from the, the brand or the sponsor's uh, point of view. They might be used to dealing with with men, uh, male agents, uh, r- rather than women. So I, I'm just wondering, maybe you didn't have to, but I'm just wondering. Yeah, well, you see, for me, I deal, with, I, deal, I deal with sponsorship. So I'm not on the field of play. I'm sure if there was a representation in terms of the contract side of stuff, um, the on-field stuff, there, I, I don't know. I can't say there could be pushback. But if you think that in terms of sponsorship and marketing, there is predominantly there's a very strong representation of women in those roles. So actually, a lot of the times when I'm negotiating, I can't be negotiating with a woman, but I can be negotiating with a man. I just haven't found it being an issue because I had... I have a degree in marketing. I started off as in brand management, worked on global and national brands. And I think that kind of level of acumen comes across when you're meeting a brand that they understand that you know where they're coming from, that it's about their business. It's not about the athlete. It's about how you can benefit their business. (coughs) And the minute you start a conversation like that, it's very easy to be able to, I suppose, get the respect. And I'm very conscious. I'm only two years in my business. I'm a long way off where Niall is yet. I'm still very much trying to build my business reputation. But I do find that every time I meet a different brand and I can engage with them, I would hope I'm walking out the door, whether I get the business or not, they're going, well, she knows what she's at. She's representing her athletes well and understands how business works. And just on, and just a follow up on, on that in terms of um, the kind of athletes that you represent and, um, you know, different to rugby or, or um, the, the team sports in, in particular, where an athlete might get a very heightened um, period of, of fame. For argument's sake, and particularly thinking about 
people who've made mistakes in the past, high profile Olympians have come home, poorly advised, etc. So how do you manage that the, the the balance between trying to capitalise on that very small window that might be an 18 month or less and I suppose protecting the the athlete as well in terms of their long-term reputation and transition perhaps out of sport into back into real life, so to speak. Yeah, well, I think number one, no matter what, and something that's really important to me is performance has to be number one. That's always got to be number one. But outside of that, because I understand how the industry works, um, I have two things. So one is the performance bubble and the second one is kind of what I would call the PR bubble. So I make sure that if an athlete is going out doing media, that we leave a healthy amount of space between things. So they come back and there's the homecoming and there's the boom, like Thomas got off the back of Europeans. We'll do it for a period of time and we pick an end point. That's it. We're done. We wrap. And then we make sure that for his sponsorship deals, they have another opportunity to come to to market on it. And we're in constant communication around that as well. We probably, myself and Thomas, had a little bit of learning post-Rio as well. We're coming into award season now. We're coming into the season where a lot of journalists are trying to bank their content so they can get a day or two off over Christmas. Um, And you want to be as helpful as you can be around that space because they're part of the people who help build their profile. But at the same time, they can't do everything and you have to learn to politely say no on the athlete's behalf. I think as well to add to that, you just have to get them ready that come Olympic cycle or world championship, that if they do or you think there's a possibility that they will medal, that you have them ready commercially to capitalise. I think in the past, a number of athletes have done that, haven't been quite ready. Mm-hmm. It's happened either, the performance has happened too quick for them in that they didn't think yeah. they were going to meddle and all of a sudden they're, they're sort of grabbing at things <clears throat> yeah. not looking at it over a long term period which is something I'm doing with I've one athlete uh, Arthur Lanigan O'Keefe who's modern pentathlon so again it's a minority sport so similar to Sinead it's hard to get coverage so again there's a lot of PR sort of profile building in the lead in but he knows if he meddles we'll be ready to capitalise You say not everyone grew up with a horse and a gun in their house now so just right. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's, well, and, Trump. <laughs> and it's on a serious note. Um, how important is, uh, from a profile perspective and a sponsor's perspective, a digital media, social media, how an athlete or sports star behaves online, and particularly how they interact with a sponsor, but also their, yeah. from a personal perspective, we've got a lot of young guys and girls out there, fellas, mates get their phones and all that kind of stuff. How, how important is that for you guys in terms of massive now? It's and, become way, way more important probably the last eighteen months. Uh, the social media side of it, and it's becoming bigger part of sponsorship contracts as well that the requirement is more on the social side of it some brands particularly have shifted a lot off say appearances to more social media and some high profile individuals have had to go onto social media as part of sponsorship contracts because of it because the brands are seeing this is where it's at this is the market they want to hit so it's then important from our point of view you have to educate them how to do it best uh, which isn't always easy Uh, and like you said their friends aren't athletes or famous people the athlete or the client has to just forget I'm now I'm now a brand I'm not one of the boys or one of the girls anymore you can't be out drinking posting stuff out drinking you have to try and refrain but from our side of things you have to you can't just chop it off straight away you have to gradually well certainly in my experience calm them down a bit yeah. they ha- they're still young they have to live a bit yeah Yeah, and I think being savvy on social media is just, it has to be a key part of their toolkit nowadays. It's just essential. It's as important as them being prepared for media interviews. And I think what you were saying earlier about, you know, in Ireland, I don't think we have a tendency to prepare for success. 
as a country. So therefore what happens is an athlete comes back where they're used to having a little bubble of just their friends on social and then all of a sudden they have this huge other following. And as I say to my athletes, every time you tweet or you put something on Insta, that's a press conference. That's been publicised. That's the same as doing a round table with the media because the media can take that and they can use it. But they can also use it to their advantage because if they can cut through and they're engaging on social, then they can take some of that space from what I would see as the traditional sports like the rugby and, and the GA. So we take a bit, they have bit a lot of more, off now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> athletes have a lot more control of their messaging now, don't they? I mean, there are a lot of athletes who announce their retirements for example, for example, on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, uh, whereas previously they might have called the press conference and done it through the media. Now they can actually do it directly with their followers. Yeah, they can do it, and they don't. They can do it in their own words. Which traditionally it was normally the team. If it was a team sport, an individual was retiring. So sometimes that's still done. Um, but yeah, it's a lot easier for them to control the message yeah. and get whatever message they want out. That's where we come in because you don't want the wrong message or something that can be misconstrued going out, which can easily happen. Yeah, and um, you just want them to give that little bit of sense check and the little bit of guidance while it's still in their own words. You know, like when Kira McGean was making the move to the UK in terms of her trainer base to train with a professional setup, we made a decision that that was going to be done via social media because we had learned that a certain person not here up in the north had got wind of it and we said you know what rather than us trying to go out to one member of the media the best way to do this is it to be a message that can get out to everybody at the same time and she could explain the rationale behind why she was doing what she was doing and it worked really well it was done and dusted in her own way The the other thing is with a team sport the team want the person or the player to deliver a message on behalf of the team they don't really care about the individual Whereas my job is that individual. So sometimes it's hard for me to control what he's saying. Um, They'll be very careful. They'll just throw out the team line, uh, which in my case sometimes isn't great because it can have the the, the player or the athletes come across a bit boring. Uh, So you're trying to get his personality out. That's what I would encourage. But sometimes it's not that easy when you're just saying, oh, well, I, I didn't really, it was all part of the team. Obviously the Germans are trying to, well, it's the Jim Gavin thing. It's all about the process. It's all about the players. It's all about the team. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah, in exactly. interview. Nothing to do with him. Same bite, Phil. Yeah. yeah. He may as well but I mean, all there. sports uh, have gone that route. I talk to the sports guys here, and they actually say how GA players are almost worse than uh, Premier League footballers yeah, uh, in terms of what they'll give them. And that was definitely when I set up the business where I saw the opportunity because I could see some of the frustration, some of it from speaking to the media, and some of it from like pieces that they written themselves about the pure frustration of those bland answers of not being able to get under the hood of players and athletes. So for me, I felt Olympians have a lot more freedom in that space and they can express a point of view. And for me, that's one of the key selling points of the athletes that I represent is that they can be, albeit they need to be prepared, but they can be a bit more open in terms of what they put on social or how they speak to the media as well. Do you, would, you, would you tend to have a, a kind of affiliates in other markets or preferred partners in terms of, you know, people that you'd like to work with in the UK or, or Europe? Yeah, yeah. In terms of other agents, so to speak, that you might, you know. Yeah, I mean, I like if you go to rugby, I would I would speak to other agents anyway for market knowledge and sort of insider, not insider dealing, but oh, so. <laughs> trying to get get information. So, and then on the PR side as well, there's a company I use in the UK, uh, both for sponsorship and PR for some profile build. But again, that's only for one or two clients, because basically in the UK, come to English rugby, they want English players. Sure. So, but yeah, we would have companies, and then. Like if a player wants to go to Japan, I have an agent in Japan I would use or in Italy. 
South Africa, I sort of know most of the companies anyway. Yeah, and I'm definitely still just in business startup mode. So I am still just in the Irish market. You never know how things will go. I'm just in year three. So um, oh, no, you're saying bold yet, no? Um, <laughs> not yet, not yet. And, and just one, sorry, one more. Sorry, Kieran is um, on GA, and you know, is there a market there for someone to represent GA players or not? Or what's your view on that? Well, personally, you know, when I worked in Wilson Hartnell PR and I was the account director for AIB, um, GA players get a lot of opportunities to do PR days because there tends to be, you know, between. AIB, Super Value, people like that, they're asked to do specific days. Some of them are asked to do campaigns um, to negotiate a better deal maybe, but I'd say the stream of business they get is is almost guaranteed for them. And because they can't, for me, I would just look at them and say they can't build their personal brand. I represent Nicole Owens, who's a Dublin lady football player. It's a lot easier to work with her because she can tell her story and put it out there. And Mick is very open once it's, you know, within certain times of the year for her to talk to the media. That's, as we know, is not what happens with the senior men's team. That's the downside as well. You could have, say, a Conor Callaghan or something as a client, but you could get him opportunities and again, if you're looking for him, say, to do a, some profile building, Jim will just tell him you're not doing it. So even though he's not contracted, like in a rugby situation, and I find in GAA that the coach says, don't do it, they just won't do it. So then you're sort of working, it seems like are you working against each other then? Mm-hmm. So it's a hard there's, there's, one. There's so many of them, though. That's the thing. Is like There's so many GA players, and it's also so seasonal, and it's also one year, you know, TJ Reid is absolutely huge, and the next year it's a Limerick curler. Like it, yeah. You don't have a set set guarantee of Ireland, England, Six Nations, Olympic cycle. It's it's very, you know, it's looser, Also, it's, it's sort of, obviously a big name in Dublin might be good, but like, he may not be liked in Kerry, Cork, Galway. That is true. Mind you, Brian Brogan seems to have, he yeah. seems to have broken. He, he seems to have that. cornered the market, so uh, fair play to him. Yeah. I think every night um, I'm watching a Super Value ad with Bernard Brogan <laughs> doing some drill with uh, a bunch of kids. Guys, just finally, uh, before you go, just uh, tell us maybe in the next uh, year or two, which, which of your clients we should be looking out for? Maybe, Niall, you can give us a, your prediction as a rugby man uh, on how Ireland might do at the Rugby World Cup. He loves all his children. <laughs> uh, name for the future in rugby for me would be a guy, Caelan Doris, who's a client of mine. Obviously, I'm going to say that. He was captain of the Irish 20s in the summer there. Uh, he could spring a surprise and get into the World Cup squad. Uh, as to can we win the World Cup, obviously, off the evidence of the last 12 months, we can do, but as Sinead was saying earlier, tr- traditionally we've never delivered on that big, big stage. So, it's all about timing. Yeah, hopefully we can. Outside of that, probably Arthur Lanigan O'Keefe. I think he's on a sort of upward trajectory. Uh, he's somebody. Who, I mean, he's he's third in the world uh, now. So yeah, he's at or near the podium in uh, yeah. the various events he takes. Uh, he, he takes place in the various tournaments he competes in. Yeah. Um, Sinead, who should we look out for um, on your side? Is Thomas Barr going to bring home uh, So Thomas is looking medal? for the, well, he's got global this year. So it's the World Championships in um, October 2019. So he'll definitely be looking to be there or thereabouts. Um, Kier McGean came fourth in the European Outdoors Watcher in the European Indoors. She is called the tough of the track for a reason. I definitely can see her coming back. Ellen will, I imagine, will continue to deliver medals. Dublin ladies footballers are doing very well. And Ollie Dingley, a diver who just missed out on a medal at European Championships as well. He came fifth um, in, in the middle of all that fantastic medals that was missed. And Reese um, as well in gymnastics, he won gold at the European Championships. So he'll be on his Olympic qualifying journey over the next couple of months. So there's quite a few of them. 
in the mix. Great, okay. Well, listen, we wish them all well and indeed we wish the Ireland team well at the next uh, World Cup. Niall and Sinead, thank you for joining us. Great, thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Niall Woods and Sinead Galvin. Declan Collin produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Research was by Kieran McSweeney. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.